spectacle of the message of Christmas. And this morning we want to focus again on what the miracle of Christmas means, and we want to focus on the miracle of the method of Christmas, the miracle of the method. And we touched on a few of these things last week, and we want to kind of continue that thought process as we go on uh, today. And, um, you know, it's funny. <clears throat> one, of the, one of the mysteries of Christmas for children is, I think, how Santa really does make it to every house in the world. And it's kind of a big deal. And, um, you, you know, I, 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 told, I, I told my wife last night that I wasn't going to mention this story, but I have to. She's shaking her head. She hates it. I know. <clears throat> but I think it's funny, and so I'd like to share it. There is... Um, there's an actor named John Malkovich who was a Saturday Night Live host one night for a Christmas special. And he was reading the Christmas story to a few kids that were gathered around uh, on the stage. And uh, he would uh, sort of intermittently interject uh, his uh, own little thoughts and theories uh, on the story of Christmas he was uh, reading through. And, uh, and one of the parts that he got to... Thank you, brother. Lifting me up. Um, One of the parts that he got to was, uh, you know, the part where it says, away to the window, flew flew open the sash, all all of that part of the story. And he began to to tell the children that had gathered around him that it's been estimated that Santa's sleigh weighs over 300,000 tons. And traveling at over 600 miles per second would create such an enormous friction that Santa and his eight tiny reindeer would literally burst into flame. And sort of like a, uh, sort of like a, a, an asteroid falling into Earth's orbit. It's just science. <laughs> and so I thought, you know, it's, it's so true. And Misty wanted me to make sure there were no children in the room. And so there, I, I think we're good. Um, <laughs> but I had to share that story because it makes, uh, now as an adult, you know, as a child, you're like, well, wow, Santa makes it to every, every house in the world. How does he do that? And of course, usually parents answer is something along the lines of magic or he just does. Um, that's just what Santa does. It's his job. But if you add a little bit of science into it, it becomes a little less romantic. <laughs> So I I, I wanted to share that part of the story. And of course, you know, we've been referencing Miracle on 34th Street each each, uh, lesson that we've done the last two weeks. And so uh, that that was no different today. Um, And so in that movie, of course, Chris Kringle is describing uh, how he does his job. Uh, how he makes it to each house. Uh, and, and, and so when you throw in the little John Malkovich quote, it, of course, becomes a little less um, fun or, or mysterious <laughs> for kids. But it, I think it really is amazing from a, a child's perspective on how Santa really does make it to each and every house. Uh, and so it's, it's, sort of, uh, it's sort of interesting. We want to want to kind of focus in on that and how it relates to the Christmas story, how it relates to the method in which Christmas was delivered to us. We're going to be in Romans chapter 11 uh, briefly here in just a little bit if you want to hold that. 
You know, part of the miracle of Christmas is, in fact, the miracle of the method in which it came about. God's methods are often beyond comprehension. And I think that's evidenced as some of the things that we mentioned last week, some of the things that happened in the Old Testament as he went through and, and tried to convey that message to, to people, to his people, and how fragmented it was. And so sometimes I think the message, the method can be a little beyond what we understand sometimes. But Paul writes, and let's look at it together in Romans 11, verse 33, where he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And I think that really speaks to what we're going to be talking about today, the miracle of the method of Christmas, the depth, the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How un- and another way to put it is how unsearchable his judgments, how untraceable are his ways. You know, Paul begins this doxology of praise to God, focusing on the greatness of God, on how absolutely wonderful He is. His riches, his wisdom and knowledge was great beyond measure. And his methods are beyond our understanding. And honestly, when you think about God's methods throughout history, but in particular, the Christmas story, it makes about as much sense as Santa and his sleigh bursting into flames. (laughs) If we were writing the script for the redemption of mankind, I think we would have certainly written it a different way. A slightly different way than God. He chose to reveal himself to us in the greatest, grandest way possible, in a way that we could understand. Like we sort of touched on last week, I think what what we all assumed that God would deserve was the skies breaking apart and a host of angels coming down, blowing loud trumpets and saying, Hey, Jesus is here. (laughs) You know, big banners, fireworks, whatever. Instead, God chose to do it differently. So let's, for a moment, and we'll we'll talk about them a little bit more in depth here in just a minute, but let's for a moment put ourselves in the shepherd's sandals as they were waiting in the field, as they were just doing their thing one night, and then an angel out of nowhere pops into the sky and tells them that, that a Savior has been born, and he's in the town of Bethlehem, and he's just right over the hill. Go see him. <laughs> And how weird that must have been for those shepherds who all they were doing was watching sheep, just doing their normal thing. And then out of nowhere, this angel comes through. And so for a second, put yourself in their sandals and put yourself in what they would have experienced, having never seen anything like that before. And here all of a sudden is this angel, I imagine, was a little intimidating. (laughs) And so if we think about it that way, If we think about how Jesus could have come with hosts of angels and loud trumpets and fireworks and all the rest and how strange that would have been and how what people's reactions would have been. It would have been a little scary. (laughs) And so God instead decided to do it in such a way that was magnificent and yet simple enough for us to understand. He came into the world as a helpless, defenseless baby. 
God chose to be born to humble, poor parents. He wasn't born in a palace, but in a stable. He was born to a young couple whose hearts were pure, but who, who held no worldly influence. They were plain, ordinary, obscure individuals. And yet, they were the ones that God chose to be the parents of Jesus. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's methods are different than ours. We shouldn't be surprised at God's methods. He chose Abraham to leave his home and travel to the place of promise. He chose Joseph, the next, the next to youngest son of Jacob, to become the savior of his family. He chose Israel, the least significant nation, to be his special people. He chose David, the shepherd boy, and not any of his older brothers, to become the king of Israel. He chose Bethlehem, a small, insignificant spot on the landscape of Israel, to be the birthplace of his son, our savior. And do you see the pattern that's being revealed? Over and over again, God chose plain, ordinary people through whom he could do his extraordinary work. How impossible is it for us to understand God's decisions and methods? Most of it just doesn't make sense to us, I think. Luke records in his account of Christ's birth that Mary and Joseph traveled to Bethlehem to register for the census. While there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she wrapped her son in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. A manger is a feeding trough. (laughs) They stayed in a barn. And that's... (laughs) It's not even like one of those shoddy motels that, that kind of pays by the hour. It was, it was a place where the animals stayed, where the, the owner of that particular home kept his animals at night. I've heard it said that, you know, the, the place that they stayed was, was a barn, was a, was a place for animals. That's pretty close. Uh, typically, people in, in Jesus' day would have areas of their home that they would sort of rent out or lend out for people, for travelers who were visiting. Uh, it was part of their culture and their, their culture of hospitality. And, and so many people also had an area of their home that was sort of like a screened-in porch where they would bring in their animals at night so the animals didn't get too cold. And this is the area of the house that this particular uh, innkeeper or, or homeowner who had rooms... Uh, for people to stay, that, that was where he decided to let Mary and Joseph stay. He, it was obvious that they needed some place to be uh, because Mary was so far along, ready to pop at any moment. And so the innkeeper must have known, well, I can't really put you out in the street. I, I mean, all I've got is, is this. All I've, all I've got is where I keep my animals. But that was enough. And so it wasn't even any, it wasn't anything fancy. It wasn't anything nice. It was, it was a barn. It was where the animals stayed. And so when Mary, when the time came for Mary to give birth, 
And Jesus came into this world like everybody else has, without any pomp, without any circumstance, without any fireworks or loud trumpets. All there was to put him in, the only crib that they had was a, a feeding trough. I'd like to think that maybe Joseph did a little bit of work and maybe found some clean hay and cleaned out what was in it, put some clean hay down, wrapped him in, wrapped Jesus in some little cloths and placed him in on this clean hay, on this feeding trough. Maybe moved some of the manure out of the way so that they could get some rest. But it was still a barn. To celebrate the occasion, angels announced the news of Christ's birth, not to whom, uh, but, but to whom do, do they go and share this wonderful news? One would think that the angels would want to go to all of the leaders of the known world and, and let them know with loud proclamations that Jesus, the King of Israel, has been born in a, in a town in Bethlehem, in a town called Bethlehem, and... That's, I think, what I would do if I were writing the story. If it were up to me, I would have let everybody know who was important that Jesus had been born, and yet that's not what God decided to do. God decided to send an angel to one, one little field where there were a, a handful of shepherds just doing their thing, watching their sheep. He didn't go to kings and queens, not even religious or military leaders, but God chose to make this grand announcement to simple shepherds fulfilling their responsibilities to take care of their flocks. And the more you think about it, the more incredible the story becomes. It's almost unbelievable. Part of the miracle of Christmas is the miracle of the method that God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Think about the miracle of the method for just a minute. Following his resurrection from the dead, Jesus appeared first to a group of women. Enough said. He didn't show up at the temple and boast before the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders. I told you so. (laughs) From a human perspective, we would write the script so that Jesus rises from the dead and then returns to Jerusalem to prove that he is right, but that's not how he chose to do it. He appeared to a group of women first and then to his disciples, and then to other ordinary people, about 500 other people before ascending back into heaven. And that was it. And he charged all of those people that he saw, that handful of people to go out into the world, and that handful of people has created a movement that has lasted for 2,000 years. All because God decided to come to ordinary people and empower them to do extraordinary things how different it would have been if we had been writing the script. But God's plan has always been different. That small band of followers that Jesus entrusted the good news of salvation to, I want us to think about the magnitude of what Jesus did. The salvation of the world rested in the hands of these few followers, simple, ordinary people. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and methods. Paul commented on this miracle and the method that God uses ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary work. When he wrote, brothers, consider your calling. Not many are wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that, God, that, so that no one can boast in his presence. From 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 26-29. All throughout history, God has chosen the insignificant, the destitute, the ordinary, the plain, to do things that were above and beyond normal comprehension. Just think about for a moment the, the things that Jesus did in his life through his ministry. The normal people that he empowered to do incredible things. The first thing that comes to my mind is as Jesus is walking through a crowd, he suddenly stops and says, Something, somebody has touched me. And of course his disciples are like, well, duh, you're in a crowd. Everybody's touching you. And Jesus says, no, 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 this one was different. And it was a woman who had an illness that couldn't be cured by anybody. She had seen multiple doctors, probably spent her life savings trying to figure out how to cure this disease that she had. And nobody could do it until she touched Jesus. All she wanted to do was touch the very hem of his robe. And through that power, trusting that Jesus could do something for her, she was healed. And so Jesus had empowered somebody who society had cast away. He had empowered her to be a message of the love and the power of what God can do in a person's life. And he had done that all throughout his life. And God had continued to do that throughout history and through today. His methods haven't changed. He still uses ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary work. And our abilities are not as important as our attitude and our availability. God has entrusted to us the good news of salvation. It's good for us that God can use even the simplest of vessels to accomplish great things. But there is another aspect to the miracle of the method that we need to understand. God is at work in our lives in ways that we do not and cannot fully comprehend. In the same way that we would have written the script differently concerning the redemption of mankind, we would write the script differently for our sanctification. Once we begin that spiritual journey through faith in Christ, we would ever be growing in our love and devotion to Him. We would never have any problems. Life would be heavenly bliss until the day we finally arrive at our eternal home. But the script is a little bit different. I think if, if we were writing the script, if we said, okay, God, I'm giving my life to you, now everything's going to be perfect. <laughs> That's how I would write the script. And yet, Jesus was quick to remind us that the life that he has called us to live will never be easy. The road will never be broad and wide and easy for us to maneuver on. No, it's going to be crooked and twists. There will be turns and you will fall and you will have to be picked back up. But I will be with you the whole way. And it's, it's just different than I think what we would have written. It's different than what we would have decided to do because God decided, you know what, if you're going to be called to live the kind of life that I've called you to live, it's not going to be an easy road. There's going to be pains. There's going to be cancer. There's going to be death. There's going to be disease. There's going to be money flowing out everywhere to everyone that you know. And sometimes it will be hard.
We experience all of those things and we take one step forward in our spiritual growth and follow it with, with three steps back. There are victories and celebrations accompanied by defeats and despair. And I think it's not the way that we would have it. I can't answer all of the questions as to why some things have happened in our lives, but I can tell you that when going through circumstances we don't understand, we are not left to despair. We can trust that God is at work in our lives for our good, but we must choose to believe that God is working to shape us and mold us so that we can become more like Jesus. It is a hard lesson, I think, for us to learn sometimes that all of the despair and all of the defeats and all of the setbacks and all of the things that we experience in our daily lives are just shaping us to be stronger. God's love and God's methods have uh, been likened to the refining process of gold where you have to continually put it in the fire until it, all of the all of the bad stuff floats on the top and you can scrape it off and it's it's hard to go through sometimes it's hard to get to to see the defeats and to see the messages from doctors that we don't want and to get those phone calls from friends that we don't want and to have all of these setbacks and yet what we have to remember is that each one of those things is one more thing that we can add into our hearts and add into our lives that make us a little bit stronger and mold us into the kind of person that God is calling us to be. It's hard. But God has called us to do it. It requires us to believe what he has promised us in Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God those who are called according to his purpose. Even when the angel appeared to Mary to tell her that she would be the mother of God's son, there was no way that she could have predicted all that revelation would mean to her. So put yourself in in her shoes, in her sandals, for just a second. Most likely a young teenage girl living the best kind of life that she could. And then... Out of nowhere, you receive a vision, you receive a dream saying that you are going to be the mother of the Savior of the world. Living your normal life, living your normal teenage life, well, normal as can be in in 2,000 years ago, where you're you're, you're doing your thing, living your life, You've you've been betrothed, you're engaged to be married, And then, oh, by the way, you're going to be pregnant. (laughs) That a lot of times was uh, not necessarily a death sentence, but it was certainly a a bad thing (laughs) to be pregnant before you actually get married. And so think of what it must have meant for Mary. trying to be a normal teenager, trying to be uh, solid and and, um, committed to the promise that she had made to Joseph. And then how she would have to break that news to him. It's almost, I would think, too much for a, a teenager to have to endure. A young, a young woman to have to go through. And yet she did it with poise and grace because she knew 
at some level that this was going to be something miraculous. Joseph had no idea what would be involved when he obediently responded to the angel's message not to divorce Mary, but to take her as his wife. How incredible it was for Joseph to stand up and be the man that God had called him to be, to take courage and know that God was going to be with them. This was a hard decision for them to make. Joseph and Mary endured shame, accusation, embarrassment, and ridicule. But they also experienced the miracle of seeing God become flesh right before their eyes. They saw God. The cost of obediently following God's plan was worth it for the prize of drawing nearer to God. God is at work in our lives to produce a beautiful tapestry. From our perspective here on earth, we only see the back of the embroidery. But the front reveals a beautiful picture. We are looking at the underneath side and don't understand why it looks so ugly, why it seems so confusing. It's impossible for us to understand all the different knots and colors and seemingly random directions our lives have taken. But one day, One day we will finally be able to see from the top side of this tapestry God has been weaving for us. We will then be able to see how the seasons of pain brought some rich and vibrant colors to our tapestry. We will see the fullness and richness of the design reflected in the seasons of joy and celebration. We will see the depth of character revealed through the times of testing and trusting. Therefore, we must continue to trust that He is at work and that He is working for our good. Continue to trust God, even though we may not understand how He is at work in our lives. Continue to follow Him with our lives, and our lives will be richly blessed. The miracle of the method is that God uses ordinary people like you and like me to accomplish extraordinary things for the sake of the kingdom. The miracle of the method is also that God is at work in our lives in ways that we don't understand. Therefore, we must choose to trust what He, what we know to be true because of what He has revealed through His Son. We must choose to believe that God is working in us and through us for, the, for our good and His glory. He is at work weaving a beautiful tapestry that will one day be revealed for all to see. And so think for a moment as we come to a close this morning. The ordinary people that God had called on to do His extraordinary work. A, a couple of teenagers who were just trying to live their lives, be committed to each other, have a decent marriage. And then out of nowhere, God calls them to be the parents of the Savior. Uh, A couple of a handful of shepherds who were just doing their thing in a field one night, God chose to reveal himself to them first. Well, second... (laughs) A couple of teenagers, a handful of shepherds, and then as Jesus got older, he picked a a handful of working men to follow him. 
They were fishers and tax collectors and, and just normal working people who he called upon to be agents of his work, to, to go out and tell the entire world about who he is and what he had done. And then as soon as he died and rose from the grave, he didn't go to the, he didn't go to the religious leaders. He didn't go to the temple. He didn't go to, to kings and queens. He instead went to ordinary people and said, Look, what I said to you all of these years is true. What God has been promising you throughout history has come to fruition today. You are saved, and I need you to tell everyone. Go into the world, teaching them the things that I have taught you, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go into the world. And he didn't, he didn't choose to empower the religious leaders of the day. He didn't choose to empower kings and queens to force their subjects to, to know who he is, but instead he went to you and to me. And he simply says, go and share my message. There are a lot of people more powerful than me, more powerful than the people that I know that he could have gone to and could have said, I need you to tell the world about what I have done. And yet instead he calls on me. And he says, I need you to tell them. And instead, he calls on each one of us and says, I need you to tell the world. Often we don't understand the methods that God has used throughout history to tell of his amazing love and his amazing work. And yet, all throughout history, we can see how God has taken ordinary people, plain, simple, nothing extravagant, to do his extraordinary work for his kingdom. Would you pray with me this morning? God, Father, how wonderful you are. How great are your riches, your wisdom, and your knowledge. But we would also confess that it is impossible for us to completely understand your ways, nor are your thoughts our thoughts. You into a neat little box. We confess that many times we feel frustrated and confused by the things that happen in our lives and help us to remember that you love us and are at work in our lives for the good and your glory. Help us to continue to trust you even when we don't understand how you are working. Lord, you've chosen to use ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things for your kingdom. Please use me. I ask you, Lord, to please take my life and use me in whatever way you decide to extend your kingdom here on earth. Thank you for the confidence you have placed in me by entrusting to me the responsibility of sharing the good news of salvation with those around me. Thank you for loving me through all that you do. And it is in all of these things that I ask in Jesus' name, Amen.